Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. In the winter of 1617, a terrifying storm devastated the male population of the Norwegian island of Vardor when a fleet of fishing boats was destroyed. The authorities were already suspicious of remote communities of the region where Christians and the indigenous Sami population lived side by side. After the storm, rumours of witchcraft soon spread. As fears became heightened, the first women were put on trial. The storm and the ensuing witch trials are the inspiration for author Kieran Millwood Hargrave's debut adult novel, The Mercies. And then the sea rises up and the sky swings down and greenish lightning slings itself across everything, flashing the black into an instantaneous terrible brightness. Mama is fetched to the window by the light and the noise, the sea and the sky clashing like mountains splitting so they feel it through their souls and spines, sending Marin's teeth into her tongue and hot salt down her gullet. And then maybe both of them are screaming, but there is no sound save the sea and the sky and all the boat lights swallowed and the boats flashing and the boats spinning, the boats flying, turning, gone. Marin goes spilling out into the wind, creased double by her suddenly sodden skirts, Dina calling her in, wrenching the door behind to keep the fire from going out. The rain is a weight on her shoulders, the wind slamming her back, hands tight in on themselves, grasping nothing. She is screaming so loud her throat will be bruised for days. All about her, other mothers, sisters, daughters are throwing themselves at the weather, dark, rain-slick shapes, clumsy as seals. The storm drops before she reaches the harbour. Two hundred paces from home, its empty mouth gaping at the sea. The clouds roll themselves up, the waves fall, resting at each other's horizons, gentle as flock settling. The women of Varda gather at the scooped-out edge of their island, and though some are still shouting, Marin's ears ring with silence. Before her, the harbour is wiped smooth as a mirror. Her jaw is caught on the hinges of itself, her tongue dripping blood warm down her chin. Her needle is threaded in the web between her thumb and forefinger, the wound a neat circle of pink. As she watches, a final flash of lightning illuminates the hatefully still sea, and from its blackness rise oars and rudders and a full mast of gently stowed sails, like underwater forests uprooted. Of their men, there is no sign. It is Christmas Eve. In this edition of Historical Fiction, History Hits' Alice Roberts has been to Oxford to meet Kieran Millwood Hargrave to find out more about the history behind the Mercies and how she set about turning it into a powerful novel. 
Historical fiction. Historical fiction. So, Karen, tell me about this remarkable period which you have chosen to write about. It's a tiny island called Vardia, this tiny place in the middle of nowhere. And just off the coast in 1617, a storm arrived as if conjured, as if loosened from a bag, eyewitnesses said. And it was so devastating that all the fishermen who were out at the time died in an instant. There were 40 fishermen out on Christmas Eve trying to get their Christmas catch, trying to provide for their families. And in a matter of moments, you know, not even minutes, these men were drowned and what they left behind was essentially a community of women who had to rebuild their lives. And then you fast forward three years and Vardja becomes the site of Scandinavia's worst ever witch trials. So the Mercies looks at how these two events connected and it tries to sort of bring light and, and breath into that silence that exists in those gaps and events. And I think as a writer, you're always looking for those moments that you can claim and make your own. And this was my opportunity to really dig deep into this time and to understand these people and to explore the link between the storm and the witch trials. The 1600s was when paranoia was at its peak. And I think that's because rulers were really trying to reassert their place in the world, their status, and trying to reassert their power and dominion over their lands. And who doesn't love a bit of fear to bring the country together? <laughs> you know, it's a well-employed tactic of tyrants the world over. And King James was, of course, incredibly effective in his hatred and treaties against witches, against women. <laughs> and King Christian of Denmark, Norway, as it was then, was very much a fan of King James's work and Scotland and Norway have a long history of sharing, swapping princesses and, and things like that. So there was real shared DNA in the way that they approached the world, in the way that they approached their beliefs. And I think it's always interesting to look at this, obviously from a contemporary context, it's monstrous, but from their point of view, they were doing the godly thing they truly believed that they were making the world a better place. And I think they're the most dangerous people who believe that they're in the right. And King Christian brought in the Trolldom Decree in 1617, the same year of the storm. And it was enacted in Finnmark, which is the region that Norway falls under, in 1620. So three years later, these witchcraft laws were brought in officially in Finnmark, in the northeasternmost territories of Norway. And from that year, women started to be burned at the stake. It was an instantaneous reaction, mostly led by a Scotsman called John Cunningham, later Hans Koenig, to give him his Norwegian name, who was appointed Lensman, Lord over Finnmark. And he had a castle at Vardja called Vardjahus. And from there, he tried witches. And just across the bluff from the castle, you can see the spot where he burned them. Now, how have you created this fiction within this very dramatic setting? So it was a real gift when I discovered the two events that bookend the book. So we've got the storm of 1617 and we've got the witch trials that begin in 1620, that by the time they were done, 91 men and women will have been burned on this tiny island and nothing in between. There's this real resounding silence in between the storm is well documented because its effects were felt across the northern hemisphere. It was an extraordinary event. 
and the witch trials, the testimonies were well documented because they were proud of what they were doing. But in between, there is this real lack of any concrete evidence, anything that really provides an idea of what happened. And so as a novelist, it was perfect to write into and to really claim that space and try and make something of it because, you know, I'm not writing a non-fiction. I wanted to be able to really come at this from an emotional standpoint and to really create characters that I could make my own. So none of the characters have names of people who were directly involved in the witch trials. What they have instead is an amalgamation of two. So Marin Magnus Dutter is an amalgamation of Marin Olaf's daughter. So she'll have been a real woman but she's only representing someone who actually lived and died in these events so that was quite an interesting exercise to really try and bring these women to life because we don't know if this remained a matriarchy we don't know if men came in straight away and it was kind of a gift like to find something that I could really make my own and also try and be respectful about it. When I read the book, I enjoyed how you managed to knit together this Scottish preacher through letters and then these girls who live in Bergen and then this girl who lives in this remote village. How did you manage to weave this web together? So Marin is my primary character and she lives on Varja, has all her life and she witnesses the storm, witnesses her father, her brother, her lover die in this storm. And essentially then the next few chapters are her and her community just trying to find a way to survive this, trying to find a way to provide food for themselves and also wrestling with these enormous feelings of trauma and grief. And when I was writing it, I was just starting to get really depressed. I was feeling very mired in their world, quite claustrophobic. And I knew I had to have an outsider come in and break it all apart. There needed to be this opportunity for life and hope and joy in this world. So I introduce a character called Ursula, Ursa. And she is a ship owner's daughter whose um, her family's fallen on hard times. But they still live in a big house in Bergen. They live in what we would recognise as society. And her head is full of, who is my husband going to be? What's he going to look like? Because that's all that's ever been expected of her, is, is that she will marry well and this will bring her family out of their hard times. And then a preacher from Scotland comes to the port looking for a ship to take him north to Varja. And he meets Ursa's father and basically Ursa's father offers him his daughter and as her dowry passage on the ship for them both to go north. So Ursa ends up married off to this man she's never met called Absalom Cornet. And she takes this arduous journey that would have taken a few weeks but takes even longer because her father's ship has to call in at every port on the way to try and make as much money as possible. And she quickly discovers that her husband is not a kind man, that he's hardened by his beliefs, he's hardened by his work and his life. And Ursa herself manages the incredible feat of staying soft and kind, even in the face of emotional cruelty. And so when she arrives in Varja and her and Marin are sort of thrown together, they really bring out 
the light in each other. So Marin starts to process her grief and we discover that this woman who looks quite hard on the outside is actually very soft um, on the inside. And we learn that Ursa, who looks soft on the outside, has this core of steel. And they really bring out these, these energies, these characteristics in each other. And the book goes from being something that could be quite morose into something that is actually about friendship and hope and light and how that can be found even in the darkest of times. Yes, and when you write, I think your descriptions, they're so rich in natural imagery. It really conveys how important the sea, the sky was to everything that people did. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. Last night, Marin dreamt a whale beached itself on the rocks outside her house. She climbed down the cliff to its heaving body and rested her eye against its eye, wrapped her arms across the great stinking swell. There was nothing she could do for it but this. The men came scrambling down the black rock like dark, swift insects, glinting and hard-bodied with blades and sides. They began to swing and cut before the whale was even dead, it bucking and all of them grim and holding like nets tight about a shoal, her arms growing long and strong around it. So wide and fierce she held it until she didn't know if she was a comfort or a menace and didn't care, only watched its eye with her eye, not blinking. Eventually it stilled, its breath melting out as they hacked and soared. She smelt the blubber burning in the lamps before it stopped moving, long before the bright roll of its eye beneath her eye wore down to dullness. She sank down into the rocks until she stood at the bottom of the sea. The night above was dark and moonless, stars scarring the surface. She drowned and came up from sleep gasping, smoke in her nostrils and at the dark back of her throat. The taste of burning fat caught under her tongue and would not be washed away. There's obviously a kind of clash of ideology in your novel. Could you tell me a bit about that? 
Yes, another important thing that was happening at this time was a real struggle between the indigenous population and the white population, I'll call them for lack of a better descriptor. And the Sami people had inhabited Finnmark for centuries and they had their way of grazing the land. They used to have flocks of reindeer that they'd move north and south according to the season. So the Sami people, they believed very much that they could control the weather. So there were these figures called Nwadi, sort of shaman-like figures. And Norwegian sailors would go to them and ask them to guarantee them safe passage. And so this was a common and accepted practice for a long time. And even after the Trolldom Decree, it was still very much present. And so I think it's just interesting to look at it from the point of fear, where suddenly something that has been accepted and even valued is suddenly flipped into a new light at this moment in history. And suddenly it's a threat. And suddenly people are looking at the storm of 1617 and saying, well, if they can control the weather to ensure safe passage, maybe they can control the weather to kill people. Maybe they caused this storm. And so it's interesting to note that there were three men who were also murdered in the witch trials. They were all shaman, um, and the rest were white women. So lots of this book, there's descriptions of very intimate things within a house where I can't imagine there's that much record of people's conversations. I mean, do you feel responsibility for writing things which people might take for being real? Absolutely, and you are aware that... But that's the sign of a good fiction, isn't it? When people think, oh, this might be actually how it happened. I read the Hilary Mantel books and I feel as though I'm inside Thomas Cromwell's head. Um, so I think that... Yes, of course, you have a responsibility, but ultimately it is a fiction and the job of it is to maybe not solely to entertain because it's, you know, it's there's a real gravity to the subject matter. But, you know, I want readers to be gripped by it. I want them to care. I want them to feel as though these characters did exist and to a certain extent a version of them did. And I think that something that I really bore in mind was not trying to project my contemporary judgments, my contemporary sensibility onto these women. I thought, what would it actually have been to grow up in a society where you were the second sex? You were not able to provide for yourself without your husband. You know, they aren't super women. They're this community of ordinary traumatised women. How would that have actually been? I think something that I did to celebrate that was I elevated the domestic. So one thing we do have are records of recipes, for example, that were traditional to that time. Flatbread would have been a huge part of their diet alongside fish. And so there's a scene where I have my characters making flatbread in the traditional way that has stood for centuries. And it just felt important to keep those details, those textures in to really do due diligence to the way these people lived. I always say about this book, it's a celebration of the way they lived before how and why they died became all that we knew mm, about them. Yeah. So I'm going to lead naturally to talk about your research. And are there any sources about these people? My main source was the work of an incredible academic called Dr Liv Helen Willemsen at the University of Tromsø. And she is the first and only person to translate the testimonies of the women into English. And it's honestly, if you can get a hold of her testimonies, which is quite hard because I originally got in touch with her because I couldn't find a way to order the book in English. 
um, of the testimonies and we got talking and we eventually became friends. I flew out to meet her a few times and she is linked very closely with a university in Scotland as well. Her research for anyone who cares about women's history at that time and political history at that time is just superlative. And so she is the authority on the witch trials. But what she's also tried to do is, to a certain extent, understand where this came from in the wider context of Scotland, in the wider context of the world at the time. And her knowledge and her emotional connection is therefore so rich. And there was a point when I was talking to her, I was like, you could write this book. And she was like, no, I, I only want to write the facts. That's all that interests me. She has a, feels she has a real duty to them. And we travelled together to a few museums to try and understand how did they live? What were the structures they lived in? What did they eat? What did they wear? Because those aren't easily found answers, especially when you're so devoid of reference points like trees, you know, that's what they would have burned, was wood, I assumed, until I discovered there were no trees. So actually we discovered it was more peat and moss and things like that. And it was just really interesting to challenge all my assumptions and to meet her and to meet an expert and realise she didn't even know for sure what there was. So most, some of what I've written is an educated guess but it's very much done with respect and as much research as I could have done. Are there parts where there's just huge gaps in what we know of these people, the way they live? Absolutely, and the way I tackled that was I focus on something that I believe has changed very little, and that is human nature. And obviously the outside forces that enact, so we do have concepts like feminism now, however you might, well or badly, you might think those might have, been enacted in the real world we do know that we deserve to be equal citizens whereas at that time you didn't so that will have changed your psyche somewhat but you know basic human nature desire hunger fear these are things that we are in touching distance of our ancestors with when we get an adrenaline rush we are directly connecting with our ancestors when they see something that might eat them so that was where I got the true emotional honesty of the mercies was I relied on those basic things that make us all human. So tell me about your writing process. Writing this book was very different from how I've written any other sort of book. Normally I would research and, and build the world of the book before I start writing. But this book, the characters and the images that open the book came through so strongly that I just plunged straight into writing. So this book had the benefit of just being written from a very compelled, propulsive, emotional place. And I think you can really feel that drive through it, that it really picks up pace. And that was the case for me when I was writing it was I just became more and more consumed by it as I went along. And then on my second draft, I went back and threaded in details. And I think that that is a good tip for anyone who wants to write and wants to write historical fiction is don't get too mired in the details early on because you'll lose what your reader is actually coming to a fiction book for, which is to be a good read and to get emotionally invested in these characters. And you can always go back and add in those details that bring the historical texture to life. So if you're thinking of writing your own historical fiction, that would definitely be my tip. 
would be to go back in and remove the stitches in later drafts and really add the texture in later drafts. So I, for example, had them all drinking tea in my early drafts. And of course, they didn't drink tea in Varja on a tiny Arctic Circle island. But that's an easy enough detail to pull out and to put back in the correct detailing. So that would be my, my top tip if you were interested in writing. And have you always been attracted to history? So I come from a family of history buffs okay. and none of us are official historians, but my dad primarily reads historical nonfiction and we've always been brought up with a strong sense of personal history as well as social history. And I wish I'd studied history at university. I did English and drama with education. And if I had my time again, I would do history because I think even at school, it taught me the most valuable lessons that I've had moving forward as a person, which is to always put things in context. You know, history always takes the long view. And I think that can be so valuable, especially in times of crisis. You know, at the moment, there are a lot of things that I'm feeling perturbed about and worried about. And I think if you can take that long view, you see the endurance of the human spirit and you can see the good in people as well as the bad. And I think that that's really important, especially when writing fiction, to keep that sense of hope that history gives you. Corinne, thank you very much. Thank you. Historical Fiction.